I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute, and welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Jonah Berger. Jonah is Marketing Professor at the Wharton School and a several-time international best-selling author with books like Contagious and Invisible Influence. He's an expert on change, social influence, word of mouth, and he's just written an interesting new book called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. Some nice poetic rhyming there. Out from HarperCollins in March 2023. It concerns how people can influence other people effectively by using words and language in the right way. So a fascinating topic, and uh, that's what we're discussing today. So congratulations on the book, Jonah, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the central idea of your book, Jonah, and is there any sort of timely component to that? Why, Why now? Well, let me start with the central component, and then we can get to the timeliness of it. I don't have to tell you that everything we do involves language. Language is how we pitch ideas in presentations. Language is how we convince clients. Language is how we write emails. Language is how we talk to colleagues. Language is even how our own private thoughts come about. When we're thinking to ourselves, we are using language to express those thoughts. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about the ideas we want to communicate, as leaders, for example, if we're making a big presentation, we may think about exactly what topics we want to talk about and the points we want to hit in those topics. We think a lot less about the specific words we use to express those ideas. But unfortunately, that's a mistake because subtle shifts in the language that we use can actually have a big effect on our impact. As we may talk about soon, you know, adding a couple letters to the end of a word increases the likelihood that other people say yes by over 30%. If we say, rather than I like something, I recommend it, it makes people almost 50% more likely to take our suggestion. And in everything from the language that employees might use in email to the language that customers might use in applying for a loan, that language is super helpful in predicting how those people are going to behave in the future. Employee language, for example, we can predict whether someone is going to be promoted or fired based on how similar their language is to their peers. In applying for a loan, we can predict whether someone's going to default or not based on the language that they use. And so The simple question is, how by understanding language and how it works, can we increase our own impact? Very good. So you have a framework of six categories which influence the effectiveness of language. Before diving into some of the specific levers, could you give us an overview of this six-part framework? Sure, yeah. So there are six key types of magic words we can use to increase our impact, whether it's about persuading others, motivating teams, increasing creativity, even connecting with others more effectively. The six types fall into a framework, and that's the speak framework. The S is for the language of similarity and difference. The P is for the language of posing questions. The E is for the language of emotion. The A is for the language of agency and identity. The first C is for the language of confidence, and the second C is for the language of concreteness. And for folks who are following along going, wait a second, speak isn't spelled with two Cs, You're exactly right. It should have a K. I wasn't clever enough to come up with a framework with a K, though somebody did point out in Scrabble, K is the most difficult letter. So I I feel a little bit better about that. But each of these six types can be used to increase our impact in a variety of different domains. Great. So let's dig into at least a couple of them. So maybe we can start with identity and, and agency. Tell us what that one is all about. So the main idea of the section of agency and identity is language not only suggests what we want someone to do or what information we want to collect, 
It suggests what it means to engage in something or who is responsible for an action. So a number of years ago, some researchers were interested in how we can encourage others to do something. Often we want somebody to help with something or take an action, but it's difficult to get them to say yes. How can we make them more likely to do that? And so they went to a local preschool and they asked some four and five-year-olds to help them clean up a mess. Classroom was full of blocks and crayons and a bunch of things on the floor. They asked some students, hey, can you help clean up, as we often might? And they asked other students, hey, can you be a helper and clean up? Now, the difference between help and helper is, is quite small. It's only two letters at the end of a word. Yet that led to about a 30% increase in the proportion of students that helped, that cleaned up the class. And it's, it's not just students in classrooms. The same holds with adults and much bigger behaviors. In a more recent study, they looked at voting. Obviously, voting takes significant effort. People know they should vote. They don't always do it. For some people, they asked them, hey, could you please go vote? And for other people, they said, could you please be a voter? Now, the difference between vote and voter is even smaller. It's just adding an R to the end of the word. But that led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of voting. And so you might be wondering, okay, help, helper, vote, voter, what's the difference? Why did it, why did it increase people's likelihood of saying yes? And the answer is subtle but quite important, which is that we all know we should take certain actions. We all know that we should vote and help and do a variety of other things. We don't always have time. But what we care more about than specific actions are holding desired identities. Everyone wants to see themselves as smart and competent and efficacious and all sorts of different things. And so if actions allow us to signal to ourselves and others that we hold desirable identities, well, now we're much more likely to take those actions. Voting, sure, I know I should, but I'm, I'm busy. But if voting is an opportunity to be a voter, well, now I'm much more likely to do it. Similarly, helping, again, helping is a good thing. I know I should do it. But if helping is an opportunity to show myself that I'm a helper, I'm much more likely to do it. And so by turning actions into identities, we can make people much more likely to take those actions. The same thing actually holds on the negative side, but in the opposite direction, right? Losing is bad. Being a loser is even worse. Cheating on a test is bad, but being labeled a cheater would be even worse. And so research finds that when cheating would make you a cheater, people are a lot less likely to do it. It's like, it's like there's an old anti-littering campaign that says, rather than just saying don't litter, it says don't be a litter bug. And the idea there is, hey, don't hold this negative identity makes people much less likely to engage in that behavior. So I think that's very clear and it sounds very actionable, Jonah. Perhaps more complicated, at least in my reading, because it involves a question of balance is concreteness, for example, because you say that on the whole, it's better to be concrete, but on the other hand, sometimes it's better to be abstract. So tell us about using the, the concreteness lever. Yeah, you know, we did a study a few years ago on a situation that often happens in companies and leaders often face, which is how to show people that you're listening, right? It, it's one thing to say that we're listening and one thing to say that we care, but, but how can we show listening? How can we show people who actually care what they're saying and, and interested in, in what they have to say? And we actually did this in, in an interesting context, which is, is customer service, right? Customer service wants to show people that they care. They say, when you call customer service, they say, hey, you know, we care very much about your call, but then they put you on hold for 40 minutes, making you feel like they, they don't actually care. And so we want customer service agents to show customers they care. Is there a way that they can do it? And, and in particular, could language help us do this? And this is a a question that uh, relates to a lot of companies more generally, right? We not only care about whether we get something from the customer service agent, but could the language agents use actually increase customer satisfaction? And so a couple of years ago, we did a big study, both with an airline as well as an online retailer. We looked at hundreds of customer service calls, and we looked at the language agents used and how satisfied customers were at the end of those interactions 
and whether they came back to purchase from the firm again. And we found that controlling for everything else, a variety of factors, subtle shifts in language actually had a big impact on both satisfaction and purchase. And one of those factors that mattered a lot was what we called linguistic concreteness. And what does that mean? Well, some things are very concrete. Tables are concrete, chairs are concrete, walls are concrete, water is concrete. They're all things you can touch, feel, see, you can take in through your senses. A word like leadership is not very concrete. Vision is not very concrete. A word like love is not very concrete. Those are more abstract words that are harder to picture in our minds. And so we found that when agents, service agents, used more concrete language to talk about what they were doing, that increased customer satisfaction by around 10 to 15% and had even larger impact in purchase. And so to give you an example of what I mean, you know, a customer service agent could say, okay, you know, your refund will be there soon. It's an easy thing to say. If they instead said, your money will be there tomorrow, money is more concrete than refund, tomorrow is more concrete than soon, that's something that increases customer satisfaction. And it does so because it makes people feel like the agent heard what they had to say. Right? It's really easy to say we listen and say we care. It's a lot harder to show it, and, and concrete language right. does that. Now, at the same time, you say that sometimes it actually pays to be more abstract. And what would be a situation where abstracting or generalizing is more powerful? Yeah, well, there's, it's not generalizing. It's using abstract language. And, and so there's some research on fundraising, for example, in startups that shows that actually for startups, abstract language is, is better, not in general, but for raising money. Because if, if you think about it, the challenge for startups in raising money is you don't just want people to understand your idea. You want them to think it's a big idea. And so while concrete language in a variety of situations is more memorable, is easy to understand, has a host of benefits, abstract language can actually make something seem bigger, like it has more possibility. And so research shows that in the context of startups fundraising, startups that pitch themselves in more abstract ways actually fundraise more. If you think about a, a company like Uber, for example, if they say, hey, we're a way to get from home to the office, that's very concrete. I know exactly what they do, but it seems rather small. If instead they said, we're a transportation solution, well, I don't know exactly what they do, but it does sound like it has a lot of potential. And so particularly if we want things to seem big and broad, using abstract language can actually be more effective. So let's talk about another one of your, your levers, emotions. You talk about injecting positive and negative moments into narratives to, to create engagement rather than more sort of neutral fact-based language only. Tell, tell us about using emotions strategically in, in persuasion. Sure. I think as, as leaders, we often have a, a challenge, which is we're told that we're supposed to tell stories. It's been a lot of attention in the last decade or so in terms of storytelling, but we don't always know what that means and we don't always effectively know how to do it. And I think there's a tendency when we tell stories, particularly about ourselves, narratives about ourselves, you know, we've just joined a company or we've just talked about how we came up with a strategy. There's a tendency to only hit the highlights, right? And if, if you look on social media these days, it's easy to see, right? Most individuals just talk about the highlights. This amazing thing happened and that amazing thing happened. And, and while that in some ways is good, we think it signals positive things about ourselves, it has two problems. One, it's not very interesting to listen to. And two, it doesn't help other people connect with us, right? Because if all we do is share our moments of success, it's really hard for other people to go, well, I mean, my life isn't like that. So it's hard for me to resonate with what you have to say. And so it actually turns out that making our stories a little bit more like roller coasters and injecting the low points makes actually the high points even more impactful. A good way to think about it is, you know, the view from the top of a mountain is beautiful, 
but it's a lot more meaningful if you walked all the way up there than if you got dropped off by a helicopter. And we, we've analyzed tens of thousands of movie scripts, and we find that movies that have that pattern, that go up and down and up and down, end up being much more successful. And you can even look at, there's a great podcast I love listening to called How I Built This, where the host interviews you know, founders that have started billion-dollar companies and, and how they got there. And he always digs into the failures. And I think often as leaders, we want to avoid the failures. We want to skirt over the failures. We, we want to pretend the failures didn't happen. But by revealing some of those failures right, and showing how they helped us succeed, it actually makes us seem more human, it makes us seem like more real individuals and helps our audience connect with what we have to say. I think you've given us a good sampling, Jonah, of some of the ideas in your book. I'll point out that there are six categories. We just covered three. And within each category, there are at least half a dozen concrete tips. But in the interest of time, perhaps we can go slightly broader and try to contextualize some of this for our listeners. So I think I'm definitely persuaded that there are more and, and less effective ways of, of using language. I think you make a very strong argument. I'm just wondering whether there is a limit to what you might call instrumentality here. In other words, if as a listener, right, it sounds to me like you're using artifice, you're using some technique on me to magnify my, my engagement. I wonder at some point whether it becomes inauthentic or, or self-limiting. What are the limits of these techniques that you're proposing? You know, I think with any approach to anything, it has to feel authentic. With any tool, it's not just about using the tool, it's about using it the right way. There's some great research I talk about in the book of the power of asking for advice, for example. Asking for advice actually makes people like us more, not, not less. We think it'll undermine our competence. It has the exact opposite effect. But if we do it badly, it's not going to work. Similarly, questions, there's lots of questions that are valuable. I talk about the power of asking questions the right way. But if we do it in a way that feels inauthentic and you know, like we're trying to influence someone in a negative way, they'll, they'll certainly push back. And so I think as with any tool, it's about understanding how to use it and, and the behavioral science behind why it works. And any tips on authenticity? Because of course, the first time you use these techniques, they're not going to be necessarily familiar and polished and, and spontaneous. How do we stay within the bounds of authenticity? I think practice makes perfect with these things. And in the chapter of confidence, I talk a lot about how we communicate confidence effectively, the types of language that signal confidence and the types of language that signal uncertainty. Some of those are language that we don't see as speakers, right? When you're just talking, you're, you're thinking at the top of your head. And so you don't necessarily see it. But if you record yourself and you, you read a transcription, they pop out right away, right? And sometimes it's a painful process. It certainly is. And I, I coach lots of leaders on this. You know, it's painful to, to read a transcript of what we've said and have to look at it because we realize a myriad of ways we could have made it better. But that's partially the point, right? By, by going back and looking and understanding how we can make things better, yes. we can train ourselves to improve. I guess connected to the concept of authenticity is corporate communications. Corporations have to comment on a lot of things nowadays. Uh, almost everything in business is politicized. Sometimes they're accused of being a little too slick, though. Purpose washing, green washing, essentially it's an accusation of a lack of authenticity. Can we be too slick in communications? <laughs> Certainly. You know, I was, I was doing an event recently, and the moderator asked me, I, I spoke for a while, the moderator at the end asked me about authenticity. And he said, you know, Companies really want to use chatbots and you know, influencers to, to signal authenticity. How can they do that? And I, I sat there for a second. I said, you know, I mean, the way to be authentic is to tell people how you actually feel and connect with them as, as people. And so I certainly think it's difficult in corporate communications to be authentic. You have to understand what your values are and what you as an organization stand for. 
And you have to be willing to use plain language and, and speak to people like people. I think too often it's, it's easy to slip into something that seems really varnished and perfect, but because of that, no one's going to read it. And so if the goal is to have no one read it, that's fine. But if the goal is for people to read and engage, I think if you look at brands that actually speak like people, others are more interested in listening what they have to say. I guess we can't talk about language today without talking about chat GPT and large language models. So in a sense, large language models make textual generation or language generation trivial. It's, it's a sort of commoditization of language. In the short term, that's probably convenience. We can produce a script in much less time. But I'm wondering, in the view of the effectiveness of human communication, what's, what's the end game? What should we watch out for here? And how can we use these tools effectively? You know, if the question is, how can we quickly produce language that's generally good, ChatGPT and, and systems like it, these large language models, have, have drastically changed the way we approach that problem. You know, almost weekly, there are new models coming out that do these things better, and they're going to quickly and easily solve problems like answering questions and putting together summaries of information that's, that's out there. That's a different question, though. Producing content quickly is a different question than producing the best content, producing something like a really creative ad or really effective sales pitch. I'm not clear yet that ChatGPT and other systems like it have been tuned and set up well for those things. Eventually they may, that's certainly possible, but, but I'm not sure they're there yet. And so I think there's still a place for understanding behavioral science and using it effectively to optimize language. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that one of the questions that people ask about ChatGPT, if you chat for 20 minutes to somebody about it, the, the question almost invariably comes up, how would you know whether this is made by a human or not? And I live near Silicon Valley, and it's, it's interesting to me that in this mecca of technology, people go to medieval craft fairs. They, they, they seek out sort of human authenticity. So I wonder whether our foibles in language, our humanity in language, actually ends up being some sort of advantage here. Yeah, and notice, though, there's a difference between asking a question where all you need is an answer versus wanting to have a real conversation and feel like you've talked to a human, right? There, there are times when I call customer service where all I want is the right answer quickly. And that's something that one of these large language models can probably do and optimize. And there, there are many tasks I think they're going to be very good at. There are other tasks where you're not actually looking for information. Part of what you're looking for is connection. And I think the more we understand what people are looking for, the more we can optimize responses in terms of what they need to make sure we give that to them. So bringing this to a practical plane, I, I know that you uh, consult with companies and leaders. If a CEO is interested in availing themselves of these sorts of techniques, what sort of interventions, what sort of guidance do you give? I mean, I would say two things, right? Language does two things that are important, but they're different. One is language impacts the audiences that consume language. And what do I mean by that? Well, the ads we write, the speeches we give, the emails we share, the language we produce impacts the people that read or listen to that language. And so as leaders, we need to know how to use language more effectively in our speaking, for our teams, even for holding attention. There's a whole section of the book on how to design language to hold attention. We've looked at tens of thousands of pieces of online content and look at what leads people to read them. And so often as leaders, we don't just want to write content. We want to write content people will read. And so we need to know how to do that. At the same time, there's a second function of language, which is language reflects things about the people that produce it. And this is really an exciting opportunity for a range of organizations. We can use language that's out there, language from consumers, language from employees, to gain insight into who they are and how they're likely to behave in the future. And so if we're not using language for customer analytics, that's a, a big opportunity missed. 
So Jonathan, I think you've given us a good feeling for the content of your book and, and how it can be leveraged. Let me wrap up with a few personal questions, if I may. Do you use these techniques in your teaching and in your, in your own life? How would you relate to these things you talk about in your book? Oh, certainly. A bunch of the research in the book are things I've conducted myself, and I, I use those learnings as, as a content creator. You know, Whether we think about it or not, we are all speakers. We may not get up on a stage and speak to thousands of, of audience members, but we are constantly speaking. Similarly, we're all writers. We may not write books, but we are constantly writing content. And so I certainly use these things when I present to students, when I give presentations, keynote conferences, and even writing books. A lot of this content is how I approach, how I use language in, in all aspects of my life. So getting really personal, if I may, of these different techniques that you, uh, you talk about, the six categories, which one do you think you'd like to work more on? And I'd invite you also to opine on which one you think I need to, to work more on. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't speak for you, but I will speak for myself. Writing the chapter on confidence and learning how to convey confidence, I am... Uh, and I'm even doing now. I um I um I certainly have things I am very confident about, but I don't always use the most confident language. And so I've learned a lot from the research and the findings there about how to express confidence more effectively to persuade others. Similarly, just the power of good questions. I, I am constantly fascinated by how we can use questions more effectively. We think about questions as a way to collect information, but questions do a lot more than that. They shape how we're perceived. They shape where people focus their attention, and they shape the nature of conversations. And so in almost every aspect of our lives, we can use questions to increase our impact. Yeah, absolutely. I identify with that. I mean, I, I think that at its core, you know, my, my profession is essentially about having the right questions. So I think a lot about questions. In fact, I have two pinned to my computer that I use many times every day. I, I use the question, what is an example of that to force me to be more concrete? Oh, nice. And what is that an example of in order to force me to abstract? And I find myself alternating between the two questions. I love that. And I think understanding when to use each of those is, is really powerful. So finally, is there a next big project or are you taking a, a pause to recuperate after this book? <laughs> you know, I've spent the last 10 years studying language and how we can use it. I'm using a variety of natural language processing and, and automated textual analysis tools, working with a variety of companies and organizations to apply these insights and leverage data that's out there. And so that's certainly going to be the next couple of years of my life, continuing to, to push that forward. Well, thank you very much, John, for spending time with me and uh, congratulations again on the book. Thanks for having me. I've been discussing Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way, a new book by Jonah Berger out from HarperCollins in March 2023. I think lessons for us all, as Jonah said, we're all writers, we're all speakers, and we can all do better with language and that can make us more, more persuasive. So I think a very interesting and practical read. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.